Hello, it's Manveen, bringing you an episode from a new podcast series from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet initiative, Planet Hope. In this series, Adam Vaughan, the environment editor for The Times, asks why our planet is changing so rapidly and meets leading experts from around the world who are trying to turn the tide. Through its Perpetual Planet initiative, Rolex supports individuals and organisations who go above and beyond to safeguard and preserve our planet for the next generation. Africa, the continent that boasts vast tracts of protected indigenous land and is the home to some of the greatest wildlife on our planet. Africa's ecosystems are vital for its people and the Earth, and yet it's the continent which time and time again is impacted the most by humankind's mistakes. Scientific research suggests that by 2050, some 86 million Africans may be forced to migrate due to progressive adjustments made to their environment by climate change. With temperatures rising, drought continues to spread across Africa's already hot and dry landscape. Staggering predictions made by the World Health Organization say that in two years, a quarter of a billion people in Africa will be living with water scarcity, creating devastating knock-on effects. From food shortages, as farmers won't be able to water crops and keep livestock healthy, to national health crises, as mosquitoes thrive on stagnant water. But there is hope. Despite Africa being the second driest continent in the world, it also holds 9% of the Earth's freshwater resources, and potentially more which have yet to be mapped. But is there still time to learn about the water sources embedded in the heart of Africa and harness them before it's too late? Water is our future. I know we think the world is this mad place now. It's not. It really isn't. This is the best generation in history coming through now. Yes, the living generations now are the ones that caused the most damage, but we're also the ones that figured out how to fix it. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope in partnership with Rolex. Today, we're hearing from the man who's navigating the great spine of Africa. In this episode, we're in Zimbabwe. This landlocked country in Southern Africa is known for its diverse wildlife and dramatic landscapes. And arguably the most dramatic landscape of them all, Victoria Falls, is exactly where myself and the team are located today. Well, not on the falls. I'd rather not take a dance with death over a 100 metre drop. We're safely tucked away at a lodge within walking distance to this, one of the largest waterfalls in the world. Despite it being the crack of dawn, the team have begun setting up various microphones and cameras at the lodge just five minutes away from where Steve Boys and his team have set up camp for a few days in between their expeditions. Soon enough, the man himself appears, an apple and coffee in hand, just as the wildlife in the surrounding trees and shrubs begin to make their morning calls. Hi, I'm, I'm Steve. I'm the project leader and founder of the National Geographic Okavango Wilderness Project and the project leader of the Great Spine of Africa series of expeditions supported by Rolex. We're sitting here early in the morning, relatively early in the morning, and um, it's been quite noisy, hasn't it? It's quite, what, sort of, what sort of birds have we got going around here? Well, first we've got the ducks behind us that are splashing around. You can hear the Victoria Falls in the background. 
We've got some scrub robins, uh, some babblers, and they are not quiet birds in the morning. They're, they're announcing, I made it through the night, yeah. and uh, this is my area where I'm going to be feeding today. So, yeah, expect some noise. <laughs> Steve is a humble man. Perhaps on the outset, with little background knowledge, you might not expect him to be one of the greatest modern explorers in the world. As a South African, Steve has dedicated his life to preserving Africa's wilderness areas and the species that depend upon them. And today, he's sharing his first-hand account of his biggest expedition to date. I asked Steve if he could tell us more about some of the environmental changes he's seen in his lifetime. I mean, in Africa, we are facing a population and demographic time bomb. Over the next 25 years, we're going to see the population double, and water is crucial to that. Now, we've been exploring the rivers of southern Africa for the last 15 years. And we've found that the upper reaches of these river systems, the sources most certainly, they are scientifically unsurveyed. The people living at those locations are typically the least served in these countries. Downstream, we are seeing you know, issues with pollution, the eutrophication of water bodies. Our future is not secure. Our water security is not secure. Food security is not secure. We are seeing flash flooding. We are seeing the displacement of large populations of people because of water. We're really the only scientific group that focuses on establishing these detailed scientific baselines, mm. ecological and hydrological baselines for these river systems. Because uh, one of the biggest problems in the past was shifting baselines. So, I mean, in Africa, you know, we, we lose an elephant every 15 minutes. You know, we, we, we're looking at a rhino every six hours. The megafauna are heavily threatened. Mm. Uh, elephants never go more than 40 kilometers away from water. They're tied to water, same as we are as people. Yeah. Um, so the, the biggest problem I see that Africa faces is water into the future. We're seeing it around the world. We're seeing um, more significant El Nino phenomena. The dry periods are drier. Um, the wet periods are wetter. Mm. Certainly these river systems are becoming more and more dependent on rainfall in the tropical areas towards mm. the Congo Basin. So it's absolutely crucial that we start to explore those water sources, make sure that they are secured so that these lower river systems, the Zambezi, the Okavango, the Kwandu, can remain running and flowing mm. uh, as they are. But uh, climate change is a very big thing for Africa. Where's your passion for conservation come from? I'm a sixth generation African and I've never thought of anything else other than becoming a game ranger or a conservationist uh, my, my whole life. I could have done anything at university uh, in a finished school early, went into forestry. It was the highest nature conservation degree I could do at the time. Mm. And uh, just followed that path ever since. My family, my father's an engineer, my mother, aromatherapist, is, they're not conservationists, mm. uh, but they, they loved the bush and took us out. You know, there wasn't a two-week period we weren't going somewhere. You know? yeah. And that was the reason I ate my peas and uh, finished my dinner, because the threat was we won't take you next week to the Kruger National Park or to yeah. Botswana or wherever it was. Yeah. So I've, I've always been like this. I've always wanted to be on expedition. I remember... When the National Geographic magazine used to have those pull-out maps, uh, turn those maps, me and my brother, into an unexplored landscape in our garden, and we'd go exploring. And yeah. it was, it's always been exploring, yeah, go yeah, explore. Yeah. yeah. Can you remember as far back as your first expedition, and what was it? First expedition, expedition, like we do now on the Makoros. I mean, I, I, this is over 20 years ago, I was just about to finish my master's. I was a camp manager. A friend of mine told me about the Okavango Delta. I hadn't been there yet. It was the one place I hadn't gone. Yeah. 
Okavango Delta is a it's an oasis in the middle of the Kalahari Desert. It's not an oasis, it's really an alluvial fan. So, I mean, it looks like my hand. Picture your hand uh, going out many channels, uh, over 10,000 islands, lagoons, um, uh, massive lagoons covered in lily pads. The largest population of elephant in the world, 80,000 elephants. Largest population of lions, equal to the Serengeti. Uh, There's just abundance of life. It's my spiritual home. It is, it is a true paradise on earth, primordial. To me, it's um, kind of uh, like a... A little peek into prehistory, a time before us, an incredibly special place uh, to protect. And we went up there for New Year's, and I came back, and I still had six months to finish on the Masters. And I told my professor, I said, I'm leaving. Uh, I'm going to the Okavango. And I got a job as head of housekeeping. And finished the Masters using Bushmail, which is almost like a HF-based Morse code you know, for, mm-hmm. for text. Mm-hmm. I got the Masters. Then within a month or two, I started a PhD there. And uh, I remember going out, and I was just now, my whole world has become the Delta, uh, the Okavango Delta. I couldn't think of anything else. I couldn't imagine a world outside. And I got on a boat, and I was exploring the channels. Uh, I got lost, and I saw something in the water, and it was a makoro, one of these dugout canoes. And I managed to get it out, and pulled it out, got the water out of it, put it on land, and then I wondered who, whose it was. So I camped there. And then the next day, I took that Makoro back. I still have that Makoro. It is still the Makoro I use for all of our expeditions. 12,000 kilometers of exploration in this Makoro. But um, from that day, I would pull myself back to my house uh, from you know the lodge. Mm. And uh, those were my first kind of expeditions. Uh, yeah. My first interactions with hippos. Uh, the first mm. time a crocodile smashes into the side of your boat and, and all of that following on from that as you look back at the sweep of your career what's the sort of project or experience that you're most proud of it was in 2015 it had taken us six months of looking at satellite imagery to try and figure out how to get to the source of the Okavango in the Angolan Highlands now everyone thought that this was completely impossible it is too dangerous it's the most dangerous part of Angola the largest landmines and landmine fields in Africa are there and we partnered with the Halo Trust, a uh, humanitarian landmine clearance uh, NGO. And we tried a southern route. It was impossible. We tried a northern route. Uh, it was uh, Eventually, we got the trucks through. And uh, that was with Halo, without me. And they sent me a photograph, a grainy photograph from an old smartphone of what looked like a wetland. And looking in the satellite imagery and reading and speaking to all of the experts and hydrologists for the region, they said, no, there are wetlands up there. Those are the sources of these rivers. But they didn't really know much about it. And um, about a month later, we are now, it took me five days to drive around. And you're bashing through this forest. There are no roads. It's cut marks and trees that we're following. We go through two minefields. Uh, that's, you've got the armored vehicles in front. And we're going very slowly. And it was, it's, you know, at sunset, you break through the trees, look down into this valley, and there's this lake, the Quito Source Lake. It's not a wetland. It's this crystal clear lake and surrounded by giant peatlands. That was not just surprising. It fundamentally changed our understanding of the system, of those sources. A wetland dambo-based system uh, is, you know, filled by seasonal rain. 
this is a peatland-based system. We were to find 19 source lakes. Uh, these ended up being the sources for the Kwando, the Okavango, the Zambezi, the Congo, the Kwanza, this one place. And that really started at the Quito source lake, that realization now that all these other lakes that we've seen there, all these wetlands were actually lakes. The peatlands themselves have massive water storage capacity. We realized that the Quito source lake and those peatlands, that represents long-term resilience to the impacts of climate change. And that is incredibly important. We found the lifeline for the Okavango there, uh, knowing that the sister river, the Kubangu to the west, is rocky-based, it's flash flooding, it results in the flood in the delta. It's fundamentally important to the delta, but it's not the lifeline. The Quito won't stop flowing. The Quito has this capacity to hold water and store it. Obviously, a lot of your work has focused on rivers, but obviously where that water comes from. Tell me a little bit about where you're focusing on right now in terms of water sources. I mean, our focus is what I was talking about in 2015. I mean, that is what we call a water tower. Now, for those listening... A water tower, in this context, is not a wooden structure on top of a building in New York. This is a large-scale watershed. It is elevated, there's high rainfall, it's forested, and has high water storage capacity because of peatlands. That water tower, fundamental to what we call the Kavangu-Zambezi Transfrontier Conservation Area, and that's the largest such conservation area in the world. It is home to more than two-thirds of Africa's remaining elephants, Uh, millions of people downstream. This water tower that we documented for the first time, we've written all of the scientific papers on it, we've identified its importance. Mm. But when we profiled it, we started looking around the divides between the river basins. So now up in this Angolan water tower, we call it the Okavango-Zambezi water tower, you have the uh, Okavango-Zambezi divide. That's where the two basins meet each other. You have the Okavango-Kwanza divide. You have the Zambezi-Congo divide. So you can imagine on this landscape, a massive rain, a thunder cloud comes over, it rains. That water can fall into the Kwanza and go to the Atlantic. It can fall into the Zambezi and go into the Indian Ocean. It can fall into the Congo and go, for, go off north into that massive river system. Uh, that's the divides. And now when we follow those divides around the Congo, following the Congo-Zambezi divide, you start to see areas that rise above 1,100 meters in altitude, up to 1,400, 500. And that's where you find a mist belt. And that's where you find the formation of peat. Peat bogs. So so you can picture what a bog is. Um, So it's it's an area that is permanently wet. And you just layer upon layer upon layer of organic matter, you know, leaves and grass and things. Um, and that over hundreds and sometimes thousands of years accumulates and becomes an incredible sink for carbon. It holds carbon it, and it's living. It's, it's wet and alive. Um, peat is an extraordinary thing as it gets older. I mean, you can core into it and you can look at the pollen grains as to what plants were living a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago in a habitat. You can even take the environmental DNA we were talking about and look at what was living there uh, 100 years ago. Now, we had a team go out to Upemba, and they found that we're looking at a small little water tower here. The, the one in Angola is 250 miles across. These other ones are you know, 30 miles, 60 miles, 80 miles across, but there's an archipelago of these water towers going up Africa that mm. are not recognized for their importance. Yeah. Um, peatlands are not known in tropical Africa. Uh, yeah. The first discovery was in 2012. We've made the second largest discovery. The Ramsar site that will be established around these source lakes 
will be equivalent to the third largest in the world. I know what Ramsar is because this is my world, but explain to people what Ramsar is. Ramsar is an international treaty, one of the most signed in the world, that identifies a wetland as internationally important. Being from Britain, I'm sort of familiar with peatland, but you don't really think of peatland when you think of Africa, do you? I'm an African and and neither do I. I I thought it was used to make whiskey uh, in Scotland. Um, (laughs) No, um, it it was incredibly surprising. We stand up pole on our Makoros in the Delta. Mm. We took one of those poles, it's called an Nkashi, and we started forcing it down into the the ground. Pulled it out and that was when we realized this is peat. We have since cored it and looked at its age and started to look at um, the different strata and fire frequencies and all the fun things you can do with peat uh, historically. But um, very, very, very surprising. How much do we really know? How good is our sort of scientific understanding and the data on Africa's main water sources, you know, where where they come from ultimately? One of the main focuses for the Royal Geographical Society, for Livingston, Burton, Speak, and all of these, um, we, we became world famous explorers for their time. Uh, we're focused on finding the sources. And um, as we've found, the sources are not confirmed uh, in Africa. The work that we've done with Rolex on the Lungwevungu expedition last year has demonstrated, and we're going through the scientific process now by measuring the flows and all of the other tributaries to demonstrate this. But we're 100% sure that the real source of the Zambezi is in Angola, not in Zambia. That is by distance and by volume. Now, you know, rivers have many sources, Mm. all of which are important, Mm. um, but this is the primary source, you know, um, based on its contribution to the river. That's rewriting history. And I mean, it's sort of fascinating to me, you know, hearing that a river like the Zambezi has its source in Angola. What does it matter to people and to the wider environment? It's about the security of the upper reaches of that river system. Without secure sources uh, that are stable and protected, you're going to see these river systems become ephemeral. They're going to start to dry up. That obviously results in the collapse of fisheries. Uh, It results in uh, seasonal agriculture collapsing, people not having access to water, human migration. Big problems result from this. The sources of river systems, especially these ones uh, that we're exploring here, the Zambezi, these rivers need to reach up into the Congo Basin to that high tropical rainfall. And these sources and peatlands allow them to do that. Yeah. So it's fundamentally so it's important. It's the stuff of life, isn't it? It's food, water, food, drinking water, power as well, I guess, hydropower. Hydropower. I mean, you know, the Zambezi, what we can hear here, the, 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 that's the largest waterfall in the world. Downstream, we've got the largest dam in the world, Kariba. And the hydro schemes on the waterfall here and in Kariba, mm. these are failing uh, because of water flows, because of climate change. Yeah. Uh, and that's going to oscillate uh, more violently as we're seeing around the world yeah. uh, with the weather patterns. We're in Zimbabwe talking to the conservationist and National Geographic explorer Steve Boys. Steve has made it clear that the race against climate change to learn more about Africa's water sources has never been so urgent. In just southern Africa alone, over 20 million people and countless species of plants and animals rely on the waters of the Zambezi River. However, much of its winding journey, from its marshy origins to the saltwaters of the Indian Ocean, remains unknown to science. But that is all about to change as Steve and his team take on the biggest scientific investigation to date into Africa's rivers with the Great Spine of Africa expeditions. The Great Spine of Africa is a name given to the dividing river systems that run through Africa. 
learning more about its sources and unique ecosystems will help scientists and local communities to protect these areas and the Zambezi into the future, building resilience against climate change. This is going to be the largest expeditionary mobilization in history. We are looking at 200 um, expeditions by 2030, by the end of 2030, establishing detailed baselines for these rivers, ecological and hydrological baselines. That is the starting point. We are looking for conservation opportunities and then looking for conservation problems. But the team has focused this decade on opportunities. And the opportunities are in the upper reaches around the sources. Mm. These are typically unprotected. Mm -hmm. People there have little contact with the services of government. And we want to establish space lines with them. Mm. Look at protection, look at designation, things like the Ramsar we just discussed, yeah, yeah. Ramsar sites around those. And then go downstream. The further downstream you go, certainly when you go into the floodplain-based systems where the landscape is taking water out of the river, not putting yeah. it in like at the sources, that's where you're starting to find human settlement, agriculture, pollution, mm. conservation problems. The conservation problems we'll address by doing repeat expeditions, repeating the baselines. A baseline is just a photograph of a river until you repeat it. So it's opportunities and problems that we are going to find along the river systems of Africa, yeah. the great rivers. Yes, it does sound and seem impossible, but it's not. I meet people every week that I'm inspired by. I then bug them until they join the team. Uh, that's what we're doing here, uh, establishing new teams in Zimbabwe and Zambia yeah. around the Zambezi so that we can do our work here as quickly as we can. Because yeah. uh, as soon as we have the baseline, we will find the opportunities and try and protect those landscapes, work with communities to better manage them, to make it sustainable, to create livelihoods. And when we find the problems, we repeat the baselines, engage yeah. with government, have symposiums and workshops, create the information that governments need to shift policy if necessary, to move farms or think yeah. differently about dams. Because you know, water is our future. You know, Africa is becoming peaceful. We're going to see a peaceful Africa that's going to develop rapidly. It's got a young population. We're going to see manufacturing and agriculture and all of these things come, and we need water for that. You need a baseline, right? Because you obviously need to be able to measure how things are getting better or worse from there. What exactly are you collecting? What data? What sort of data are you recording? Just give us some examples. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, everything from... Uh, we'll have a 360 camera mounted onto uh, one of the boats, one mm. of the, the, the dugouts. Mm. That'll take a photograph every minute. That's of surrounding habitat. Mm. And within a few weeks after the expedition, we'll have that knitted together and we basically create the Google street views for the rivers we explore. So for all of the rivers we've explored, uh, you can go in there to a satellite image. You can see our route. You can dive in at any point and then look around, move forward, look around as to where we were. We populate our data onto these systems. Uh, it's all of the, the birds that we see. It is all of the people, human settlements, impacts. We are measuring water quality as we go down. Every 10 kilometers, we establish permanent monitoring sites, which are sites we can repeat in the future. Mm -hmm. And that is where we do detailed water quality mm -hmm. flows. We'll send a drone up and do aerial uh, photographs uh, mm -hmm. of that area. On our kind of Google Street Views, it's called Earth Views. Mm. We will let you know if there's an aerial photograph there to look at. Then you can, instead of the satellite image, you can see a nice high-resolution image mm -hmm. of that area. Mm -hmm. We do eDNA. We sample fish every single Explain day. Explain what eDNA is. First, we sample fish. Okay? Yeah. So we set nets. Yeah. And we have sampled you know, thousands and thousands of them. We, we don't kill the fish. We just take a small snipping of his fin, and yeah. uh, we look at the DNA. 
So now once we've got that, and we've got that for hundreds of species now, we can use environmental DNA. The fish, when they're swimming in the water, are shedding their DNA, and it lasts for about two weeks. So it's current data as to what fish are swimming in the water right there. And then we'll take a couple liters of water and pump it through a filter, send that to the lab, and through that water sample, uh, they can pick up all of the fish species that are actually swimming in the water there. So as opposed to catching them anymore, we just take water samples as we go down. Yeah, sure. Environmental DNA, we pick up everything. So it's always surprising. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, I did not know that was there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sounds like almost insanely rigorous and laborious. I mean, some people might say it's like OTT. What's the, you know, why do you go, why go to sort of such great lengths? We have three priorities. It's uh, safety, science, and storytelling. Now, the safety is just about a daily practice and briefings and, and, and skills. The science, absolutely essential, and that is, that is our, that's our daily work. The storytelling is, is the, the least practical. That is when you've got giant battery systems, you've got all the computers, you've got cameras, drones, reds, which is giant camera rigs. That's tough for us to take around. And when you're tired at the end of the day and you've got someone pointing a camera at you and asking you questions, you're like, this is the last thing I want right now. <laughs> but it is so important yeah. mean, to tell the stories, yeah. um, to translate the science. You know, every three or four years we'll make a big film, we'll go to the big film festivals and really show the world. You yeah. know? And, and the people of Africa, the people in the countries we work, love that. They love yeah. the world to care and to say, well, that's important. Yeah. But the majority of what we do is you know, inward facing. It is local language communicating to the people in those landscapes, in those countries, uh, to, in those governments, yeah. to really show them the importance of what they have and explain it in a way that is you know, accessible to people. So this is obviously a, a huge endeavor. Give people an idea of the sort of teams that make up these expeditions. You know, given we're here at the Zambezi, let's talk about you know, how you find people, who they are. I want to make the statement that the future of conservation in Africa is local. The future of conservation is local anywhere in the world now. We would not have found one species, one source lake, done any of this without people that live there. You can't see the, the, the single track footpaths to these source lakes up in Angola from the sky with satellite. You can't figure this out with technology. You cannot pull across the delta with a GPS. It's shifting and changing. It is a, it's a skill to navigate that place and find your way and follow the water quite literally. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a traditional skill. Um, so that's what we're doing here. I was uh, in Zambia yesterday meeting the local fishermen mm -hmm. that are on the dugouts, uh, that are able to navigate these rapids easily themselves all the way up to Kazungulu and down, 150-kilometer stretch. That's the focus. So obviously, we, we, the scientific teams come from around the world. Mm -hmm. We are facing a crisis around the world and in Africa, so we take that very seriously. And there is a human resource gap in Africa uh, for science, and we need to fill that for now. Our um, foundation, our projects, uh, our partnerships. We fund a lot of PhDs and master's students in these countries. Mm. We are building that capacity. Mm. We have local scientists join us on every expedition. Mm -hmm. But really the, the core of it is finding the guardians of the river, yeah. the local people. Where, you know, that, that's generations. This is their life. This is their water. This is their river. Yeah. They're the only ones that can keep you safe from the hippos, from the crocodiles. This is not tourism. There's no life jackets. This is traditional knowledge that keeps you safe. You basically, for months on end, are running a marathon every day. The most we've done is 65 kilometers in a day. Mm. You have one or two people sitting in the front and you know, a few hundred kilograms of, uh, of gear in the, in the Makoro. 
you're sunk deep in the water, so you've got this much to play with on the hull, a tiny a couple of inches. Mm -hmm. It's very wobbly, mm. so your core is engaged the whole time. Then you're going through rapids. Hippos are a constant threat. We have to stay in the shallows. It's a meditative state. I mean, you, you have to be in the present moment, which we in our, our city lives don't do that often. You, know, you often see a person walking down the street with their headphones on. They're not there. You know, you can wave at them and then they snap out of it and they're in the present moment and they talk to you like we are. We're present now, yeah. but often we're not. We're lost in abstraction. And uh, if you do that on the river, always something happens. Yeah. Something will happen. A capsize, a hippo, something. Yeah. Um, something that you didn't notice because you weren't present. And that, mm -hmm. is, that is a powerful thing. That is where, that's the source of human power, of living power, is yeah. the present moment. Which sounds like a lot of it's mental as opposed to a physical challenge. It's more mental. Yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, you know, for the first 10 years, I was in agony getting off the Makoros off our boats. Yeah. I mean, like your feet and your hands, yeah. and you're just cramped all over, you hardly sleep. For the Great Spine Expeditions as a whole, you know, how long is it going to take you to do all these rivers and all these yeah, you know, all these catchments and get all the data how long are you expecting it'll take look it's um it seems kind of herculean <laughs> no that well yeah, the project director told me and i was just recovering from cancer and so i'm like you know, the world's kind of impossible for me at that time and he says we're doing 50 expeditions in the next three years I'm like, no that's impossible and, then, and and my brain was still computing kind of when i was saying it was impossible was 30 expeditions in five and i was like yeah, that's impossible but now 50 and 3, yes, yeah, 105, 200 and 8. You know, like, no, we're going for 2030. Because I believe that after 2030, the whole network of people that we've now connected with through this exploration, through the science, mm. through the storytelling, we want to switch that to restoration and rehabilitation. Because th that's what the 2030s are about. Mm. That's what we're chasing for around the world is... It's highly unlikely we're going to get to 30 by 30. Yeah, 30 by 30, as in 30% of protected exactly. land and ocean by 2030. But from 2030 to 2050, it's about restoration, rehabilitation, because that's where the world is now. We absolutely need to, to switch into that investment. What are the sort of resources you need to do this? And I think Rolex is helping you. How are they helping? I mean, it's living in a dream. Rolex have supported the, the launch of this. I mean, our, our first expeditions into new basins, helping us elevate the importance of the Okavango Zambezi water tower. I mean, we're going to be, in the coming weeks, flying over the Kasai, which is the source of the Congo in Angola. Again, like it's not recognized properly. It is one of, I think, Stanley, a famous explorer, when he was going down the Congo, he called it the big one. It was the big tributary coming in. And that's from Angola. And we get to explore that with, with Rolex's support. And then go up and you know, look at the Nile, the White Nile and South Sudan. And that is, to me, quite brave to support yeah. us in that because uh, we are going into new territory. And yeah. I'm incredibly thankful. And, and the Petrol Planet Initiative, why is that important, not just to you, but to the environment, people you know, working either in conservation or research or you know, other stuff elsewhere in terms of environmental science? What sort of role does that play elsewhere in the world? It's establishing a network of people that are doing this work everywhere. I remember my evolution where it was, I became a National Geographic Explorer and they mm. told me, think bigger, think, think broader, mm. you know, think outside the Okavango. I yeah. became a TED fellow, think more. Now, like with Rolex, it's just like, yeah, 200 in eight years and, 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 and expand. Yeah. And you see that in all of the Rolex-supported projects as part of Perpetual Planet is this kind of expansion in thought and scale and dreaming. 
It's a powerful mechanism for that, mm. to really amplify what people are thinking about and doing. Finding people that are doing something that's really working uh, in their specific place. Yeah. And really kind of creating an example that people will follow. People yeah. say, oh, I want to be that person. I yeah. want to do what they're doing. Yeah. And I mean, the greatest achievement for us is to see people copying what we're doing to aspire to it. We have people that come into our team that are just like, I'll do it for free, uh, I'll, anything. And it's a, they saw a Rolex video. They, they, they saw that support. They mm -hmm. saw that kind of this giant light shining on your work. That's a powerful thing for around the world, a perpetual planet. So how did you feel about your Okavango Wilderness Project team being named the Rolex National Geographic Explorer of the Year in 2019? I mean... Being a 21st century explorer, I mean, it's still a thing. I mean, there are there are species to be discovered. There are landscapes that are uh, scientifically unsurveyed. It was a wonderful thing for the first time uh, to be called an explorer. And you know, I, I I only really use it on when I'm flying uh, internationally. And uh, the host, the host kind of hostess comes along and says, oh, "I want to chat to you." And say, "Like, what do you do?" I'm an explorer. <laughs> no, what's that? But I mean, uh, no, it's um, National Geographic. It's been my home for 10 years, yeah. more than that now. Yeah. And it's helped me dream, same as Rolex. So shifting gears a bit, looking forward, I guess, somewhat. From the data you've gathered to date, you talk a lot about like practical outcomes and concrete things. What are some of the sort of policy changes or practical things you want to see happen to improve not just the natural environment, but people's livelihoods in Africa as well. What are some of the things you want to achieve? Land rights, heritage rights. Everywhere we go, you, you find, you know, tourism is a way of funding conservation, okay, throughout Africa. And COVID really, really undermined that and made us think differently. And the local people that were typically displaced from the parks to create them in, in the 1960s and, and a bit earlier, they get jobs, you know, in the lodges and uh, as guides. They don't have ownership. People need to their heritage rights to land. You know, they have familial history. Grandparents and fathers are buried on islands in the Delta or um, used to walk across these landscapes with their cattle and things. Those rights need to be recognized. Mm. More shared ownership. I think the upper reaches of these rivers, there'll be opportunities where, where yeah. people are living traditionally in unprotected landscapes mm -hmm. with the opportunity to remain there and live sustainably yeah. as the guardians of those systems. Um, see benefit from the carbon markets. There should be water bonds uh, between mm -hmm. countries. We depend so much on that service, the clean water, fresh water. You know, Desalination is not going to save us. That's the great gamble of our generation. The living generations today is we're starting to think that Okay, technology is going to save us. Uh, we're going to get all the carbon out using machines. And that's, that's not the case. Nature is going to do that. And one of our biggest opportunities to do that is Africa on scale. Just on the sort of data you're collecting, you know, here at the Zambezi and on your other expeditions, now might the data you're collecting keep some of those ecosystems and some of the wildernesses? How might that feed in? Like I said, a baseline is just a baseline. It's a scientific paper and a publication. It's like a photograph. It tells you how it is right now. A baseline is worth something when you repeat it. And that's when we find a threat and a problem. And as we go down, we will start doing many repeats throughout Africa. And that is, you know, we finish, uh, we fast track publication and our reporting. We will within you know, three to six months have a symposium with government and stakeholders and NGOs. We're scientists. We don't, we're not 
in politics or government. Mm. Uh, we simply, you know, objectively will share the, the scientific findings from empirical data and help the governments make the right decisions yeah. around agricultural development and whatever's causing that threat. And, and if, if people are listening to this and thinking, I really like the sound of this, how can I help? How, how can they support the Great Spine of Africa expeditions? I mean, as more and more information becomes available from these expeditions is, is go and find it. Learn about the Great Spine. Go find the spines on your own continents. Go down to the river nearby and uh, sit by it and, and look at that water and how important it is. Connect with it. Mm. Like I said, I mean, you know, Rolex helped us dream and think bigger and think about a Great Spine. Think about the Great Rivers of Africa. And I think everyone around the world needs to do the same. Um, there are spines on every continent. Some of them are quite easy to see, the Andes and the Himalayas. Mm -hmm. I'd love it if, if they made donations. That's, yeah, we're yeah, quite sure. open to that. Yeah. The, uh, financial support yeah. is absolutely necessary. But, you know, there'll be a lot of media and films and articles coming out in this. Read yeah. them and share them. And come to Africa. I've guided thousands of people in my life. And every single one of them have felt something deep in their heart and uh, gone away wanting to come back. And I'd love for more and more people to have that experience. I know it's, it's not accessible to everyone, yeah. but, but come. Whether it's as a backpacker or to a $1,000 a night lodge, mm. uh, please come. I'm sure there's a lot of people who want to take you up on that invite. And <laughs> just in sort of really, you know, broad terms, how hopeful are you for the future when it comes to the environment? And I guess I'm, I'm basically thinking everything here. I'm thinking our ability to rein in climate change to our ability to preserve and restore the you know, ecosystems where do you sit on the sort of pessimism optimism scale my children connect me to the future so i have to imagine it what it's like i'm every day filled with hope every day meeting people that are energized into into doing something in, in whatever context whether it's as a lawyer or a shopkeeper or a conservationist researcher or an explorer I know we feel like our children are completely disconnected and they are on their iPads and there's no hope. They're, mm. they're, they're not going to care. It's not that. We are becoming more sensitive to the world around us, to each other. I know we think the world is this mad place now. It's not. It really isn't. This is the best generation in history coming through now. Yes, the living generations now are the ones that caused the most damage, but we're also the ones that figured out how to fix it. And uh, it is up to our children to implement all of this. They are more educated than us. They are more connected than we are. They know more. They're not living in the dark. Their eyes are wide open. They're standing in the light. And I have great, great, great hope for the young people coming through. They're our only hope. It's, it's not us. We're going to get the baselines. We are going to protect and conserve what we can. We are holding on for them, but uh, it's, it's not over. We are going to have those wild places in the future. We're going to have more. We're going to restore more. We're going to rehabilitate more. You've been listening to Planet Hope with me, Adam Vaughan, and my guest, conservationist and National Geographic explorer, Steve Boys. This podcast has been brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex. The series producer is Anya Pierce, the production coordinator is Oliver Adamson, and the production assistant is Shana Johnson. You can listen to us for free on The Times radio app and download every episode in this series from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.